Hello, and thank you for joining us on the Business Advantage Presents AT Law with Tammy Gaw. We have transitioned in the season to where we will now start discussing legal terms that permeate several topics, as opposed to topic-specific situations, which may have legal terminology within them. What I mean by that is, instead of discussing concussions and what the legal implications of them may be, we have transitioned to a legal situation and continuing our conversation on negligence that will be threaded through several different situations the athletic trainer may encounter. This makes it both easier, but more daunting to discuss and think about because it can be found in potentially every action we take as a professional. With that said, we will be discussing it thoroughly and providing plenty examples of how to best safeguard yourself. To make things simpler for your understanding, and to help you keep track of all of these terms, we've created an AT Law Glossary. Head to opportune.at forward slash law glossary to get your free download today. Because the information discussed and provided in the accompanying podcast is prepared for a general audience without investigation into the facts of each particular case, it is not legal advice. Tammy Gaw does not have a lawyer-client relationship with any listeners. The thoughts and commentary about the law contained on this podcast is provided as a service to the community and does not constitute solicitation or provision of legal advice. It's safe to say that if you're working outside the bounds of any local, state, or federal law, as well as your physician standing orders, then you've pretty much opened yourself up to liability. But I think it's also important to state that you can and will be held to like the most up-to-date standards of care or best practice when a negligence suit is considered. So Tammy, I know that you've said it before and I will let you say it again. Staying abreast on all and new and current issues in a profession is a professional responsibility of athletic trainers. So how is that uh, related to and acceptable maybe in how it relates to negligence. Yeah, I should I should sell art with the uh, with the quote. About, uh, <laughs> it's totally your obligation should. to stay up to date. Yeah, I'm a super creative person, right? Um, even though I keep saying it, and you keep saying it, and plenty of people in positions of authority and administration keep saying it. Uh, a thing that I don't think we necessarily we we've touched on it a little bit, but it isn't just that I want people to individually internalize mm-hmm. the idea that staying abreast of the current issues and standards as a professional responsibility. Mm -hmm. I want athletic trainers to talk to their colleagues about it. Yeah. I want them to share ideas and best practices. I want, I want the desire to be the best medical professionals we can be. I want it to incentivize them to create CEUs, to give talks about it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I want, I want it to be, I want them to feel so good about knowing it and be so proud of the ways that we can advance our profession that it takes their practice to the next level. Absolutely. Honestly, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I know I'm biased, but it's one of the reasons why I love this podcast. And, 
if I'm honest, just kind of podcasts in general, because it's a, it's an easy medium to consume information. And obviously it helps that you get a CEU for listening to hours, but I really do feel like the information that we're sharing not only is incredibly important, but it does spark conversation and, and we're getting people to think about things in ways that they may not have otherwise. And I'm hoping that they're taking it to their colleagues. Uh, the way that our listenership is increasing, it sure sounds like that they're taking it to their <laughs> colleagues. Um, but, you know, moreover to our point that we were making in the last episode, that we're building habits that, like you just said, takes our practice to the next level. Yeah. And I don't want people to feel stupid. I mean, I make jokes and we crack wise about things like that, but there is a lot to know. Mm -hmm. And there, I don't expect everyone to be legal experts mm -hmm. or to be in a position to speak intelligently on what the Florida State High School Athletic Association mm -hmm. does regarding heat illnesses in Maricopa, well, no, Maricopa totally. and Phoenix. Yeah. Whatever. You understand what I'm saying. Yeah. The idea is not, I don't want people to feel dumb or feel like, well, I didn't know that or I didn't think about that. Sometimes right. you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. So I love that this is sparking ideas in people. I've had follow up questions from people that go, well, what about this? And mm -hmm. it's really kind of led down, you know, to give them bigger pictures um, about scenarios that that may affect them or that they know of mm -hmm. that has affected other of their colleagues. So I love it. I think it's great because people, we are really good at what we do and everything that we do to make ourselves even that much better is just phenomenal for the profession. I agree. Totally agree. And you know, it also seems like it relates back to our duty as part of the negligence claim and an area that would, I don't know, maybe be interesting to dive into a bit, which is uh, job descriptions. So Tammy, what is your interpretation of the role that a job description may or may not play in a negligence suit. Because as someone who runs a business and is actively hiring personnel, I've always been taught that the job description is like a crucial piece of information to at minimum fall back on or one of the first things that people, that lawyers will look at when they're determining was someone negligent or not. Yeah, that can definitely have um, an effect on the potential liability of the organization doing the hiring. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with the understanding that this kind of employment law is also relevant to how you write and how you post job postings, sure. that's, you know, that's not even the full range of the potential liability. Um, because you've got posting the job and making sure that you're not running afoul of equal opportunity employment regulations. Mm -hmm. That's part of the story. But like you said, an employer can also be open to liability for negligent hiring or negligent supervision, um, you know, in, in the case of uh, a full-time employee where there would be a supervisor um, mm -hmm. overseeing them. Mm -hmm. So employers have to be ready to do the necessary background checks and verifications and call references. Mm -hmm. I am fascinated by how many people have said they've never had any of their references called or they weren't asked to provide them. Mm -hmm. I, I do not understand. I have follow-up questions because that just seems ludicrous. Um, if you end up hiring someone that you know has a history of behavior or practices, mm -hmm. or you would have found out with a cursory level of due diligence, mm -hmm. you could be liable if something similar happens in your organization. Right. Um, think back to our episode on pre-existing conditions, where we talked about schools that were included in lawsuits that resulted from actions taken by an athletic trainer who already had a history of similar legal trouble at a previous job. Yeah. 
Yeah. Any basic research. Yeah, the the, the Florida, California thing. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, any basic research should have turned up that previous incident. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and showing that you can be entirely compliant in your job posting is is great. But it's just as important to do the due diligence in the actual hiring. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that includes not being discriminatory in your hiring as well. Right. Sure. Of course, I would be I would be whoa if I did not mention that. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, and then another thing that we've talked about that I'm interested in in getting your opinion on is like how much wiggle room is allotted to the athletic trainer when an athlete or a parent signs a waiver or like an assumption of risk prior to participation because that's another idea that you know it kind of just. The idea is that it relieves all parties of legal responsibility should something dangerous like seriously occur. Well, we'll get into something that's known as the assumption of risk doctrine a little bit later. Um, But, you know, this isn't really a matter of wiggle room. It's more of a matter of what kind of waivers are considered legally enforceable as a matter of public policy. Sure. Um, So if they haven't already, listeners should take the time to go back and listen to the episode that we talked about waivers and how they differ from state to state. Um, Some of the things we we brought up are that um, I believe it's Utah has uh, a specific caveat almost Mm -hmm. in their waiver around uh, snow sport, Mm -hmm. whereas West Virginia has certain waivers that can and cannot be enforced regulations around equestrian sports. Mm. So some states are going to have different things that they do based on the pure dynamic legal situation of that state. Um, So the thing that listeners should take away from this is that waivers are not a foolproof protection. Hmm. And if you, you, you cannot just, I, this is as close to legal advice as I'm giving anybody. Mm -hmm. Do not write your own waiver. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I had someone tell me one time this, oh no, you know, I wrote it up. I looked on, you know, there are definitely formats that you could take from things like, you know, I'm not going to give anyone sponsorship because they're not paying you, but there yeah. are sites on the interweb mm-hmm. that uh through which templates um are available. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Actually, <laughs> you have templates available. I will give your site there promotion. You <laughs> there are templates available there. I'm not yes. gonna talk about the other one. There are templates available there, and that can be great, but, 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 when you are talking about waivers, you had best have a lawyer practicing in the state in which you expect that waiver to be enforced. You had better get their eyeballs on mm-hmm. it. Good advice. Because that is, you you do not, you didn't go to law school. You mm-hmm. didn't pay to be a lawyer. You don't jump through all our legal hoops. Do not open yourself up to that kind of liability. Mm-hmm. So having said that. Um, there's also an argument, and it's not necessarily widely accepted, but it rears its ugly head every once in a while, that waivers on behalf of minors cannot be enforced hmm. because it's kind of a catch-22. The yeah. theory is that a minor cannot sign a contract, right. so they can't, they can't sign a waiver. Mm-hmm. And the argument is that a parent cannot sign away the safety of a child. Oh, So it's, it, it, were that to be a you know, legally enforceable position, sure. then there would never be any waivers for kids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, it's not, it's just something to kind of keep in, keep in mind. Um, it just goes to show you that you can face a whole variety of arguments in a negligence case, but do not write your own waivers. 
Yeah. And to be fair, I don't (laughs) think that most athletic trainers are looking at situations where they're the ones responsible for bringing the waiver. Usually they're being hired by an organization where the organization would have done that. So at minimum, I think taking a glance at it, but again, the overarching message in this episode and the previous one is that if you operate at best practices and you are above bar on everything that you're doing, you won't need the waiver to help you get out of a situation because you, you know, you would have operated as a professional anyways, but yes, I I, I do agree. Don't don't write your own waivers and yeah. I would even say one more thing and I'm glad you brought that up because, um, you know, we hadn't even talked about this. You and I, if you are working at a place uh, potentially in a freelance situation or a contract situation. If I were you, I would make sure that I had a copy of what waiver they use mm-hmm. for your own records. Mm-hmm. Because if you do something for a school district in 2016 mm-hmm. and then something happens and you end up getting drawn into some kind of case or legal dispute mm-hmm. two or three years later, and they're using a different version of a waiver than what you were operating underneath, you know, back then. Now, technically, in discovery, they should have to produce the documentation that was in place at the time. Yeah. But I would make an effort to have a copy of every single legal document. I shouldn't say every single. That makes it sound like a lot. But, at you know, the waivers, mm-hmm. having a copy of that for your own personal records so you know what the organization was pursuing at that time mm-hmm. and how they and what their stance was, not a bad idea. That was actually something I had learned specifically relating to keeping copies because I, when I was starting business, you know, when one contract would end, I would kind of just delete it and Uh make a new one. And that was something that I had been taught was you basically should never get rid of it because you don't know how it might change. And and Uh a lot of times there's just small nuance changes from year to year, but to your point, yeah, like if something was to happen, you know, we started business in 2012. So if they were like, Hey, how did your contract read in 2012? Well, small changes over seven years equals a completely different contract, you know? So I agree with you. I mean, I, I always have a habit of keeping things, you know, asking for them to make sure we have copies, but that was a practice that I had to change. And, and actually also as it relates to keeping personnel records for our yep. athletic trainers. So copies of old insurance cert- cert- certificates, or I just kind of thought, well, once they give me a new declarations page, I'll just delete the old one. Why do I need to keep, you know, 13, 14, 14, 15, 15, 16, like just keep the newest one on file. But again, you know, all of those declarations change and yeah, it's, that's a really good point of advice because even, you know, I don't want to say even I, as if I'm somehow better than anybody else, but I was saying, even that was something that I had to learn um, that I, that I didn't really know offhand. Yeah, it's, you're right. Because if you think it's obsolete, you know, you think of it like tax records. Every mm-hmm. five years, you just get rid of what's the most rent. I would not do that. Exactly. That's, if you've got a scanner, put it, put it, put the files on an external hard drive and a little, you know, fireproof safe. Yeah. And that's the thing is, you know, digital files now are obviously way easier to manage Mm -hmm. and keep track of than all the paper ones used to be, but even more reason to be keeping histories and, and, and files of all of this stuff. So, well, I asked you about job descriptions (laughs) and waivers um, didn't mean to set you up, but the truth is, 
I have one more case to discuss, and it brings in both job descriptions and waivers. And I'm super intrigued by this case, and I wanted to save it for, you know, the second half of our episode and kind of later in our discussion, because I felt like it was kind of mashing up, um, you know, if we put it up with the other ones, it just wouldn't do it justice because this is really convoluted and it kind of takes a little bit of following. So here it is. In March 2010, at Lackawanna College in Pennsylvania, two football players participated in what is the equivalent of an Oklahoma drill. So for those who don't know what that is, it basically pins two players against each other. They run full force, uh, full speed, and they're attempting to tackle and take down their opponent. So two players, Augustus Felicia and Justin Resch, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing those, They were injured in that drill. Augustus suffered a brachial plexus avulsion in his right arm, which was an injury I hadn't even heard of prior to researching this case. So Augustus suffered a brachial plexus avulsion in his right arm and Justin fractured the T7 vertebra in his back. So Justin was transported to the hospital, but the drill continued thereafter in which Augustus injured himself. So he ended up with permanent nerve damage and total loss of his right arm. It was later discovered that the athletic trainers involved in this case were not actually certified. In fact, they had been hired the year prior and they had told the athletic director that they had not passed their test and therefore they were not licensed. And as a result, the job title of their position was changed to first responder, but the job description was not. So they were still used as athletic trainers and it was never distinguished to the student athletes that they were only first responders. And furthermore, the college argued that the players could not sue because they had signed a liability waiver accepting any physical risks associated with playing football, therefore nullifying their rights. So Tammy, I want to stop here for a moment and discuss the details up to this point. What are some of the things that jump out to you so far? Well, what jumps out at me immediately is how much this demonstrates why state legislation about who is and is not allowed to call themselves athletic trainers Mm -hmm. and what basic certifications are required to do the job of an athletic trainer which is what that job description mm-hmm. issue was a problem. This, it just shows why that kind of legislation is not only vital, but should be required. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that the athletic director did not bother to confirm their qualifications, mm-hmm. um, that did not make any effort to change the job description, mm-hmm. um, you know, something entirely simple to do, mm-hmm. or that opened the organization to significant liability, mm-hmm. and it put the health and safety of each and every one of those athletes in jeopardy, particularly if the if those athletes understood those two people as being athletic trainers. Mm-hmm. One of the things I want to mention too is, you know, I, I don't know this for sure, um, but Pennsylvania is a state that has licensure. So I know that at minimum, these people were supposed to to be licensed, but taking what you just said about verification and requirement a step further, you know, not to be tattletales, but I also think 
the enforcement of it. So if there were potentially other athletic trainers practicing who knew that these athletic trainers were acting or not athletic trainers, the, I'm going to call them students because these first responders were acting in the way that they were. We also have ethical obligations to report them because situations like this could happen. And yeah, how else is the state to know? I mean, they've done their due diligence in requiring licensure and, and all that stuff, but for them to, for these first responders to act, you know, basically posing as athletic trainers anyways, you know, the, there's very little that the state could do if they don't know about it. So I kind of wanted to piggyback on your idea of not it being vital and required, but also that we as certifieds do have an ethical obligation to report those people when it comes about. So, um, well, and I would even piggyback on your piggyback mm-hmm. because yes, he changed it to first responder, mm-hmm. but who in the community does not recognize first responder as having as being a specific title related to specific job. Yeah, absolutely. You don't think when you think first responder, you think paramedic, paramedic. You think EMT, mm-hmm. you think someone with advanced medical training. Right. So to take someone with less medical training mm-hmm. and certification than was originally identified and not just not call them what you would the, the job description or the job title that you were going to call them, but then name them something that in modern parlance holds an even higher expectation mm-hmm. is even further problematic mm-hmm. if we're just going to be piggybacking on piggybacking. I mean, I do know that first responder is a term that um, programs often use to reference their level of certification and how it regards to like CPR and AED. Yeah. And But uh-huh. you're right. I mean, at time of recording, there is currently, I'll call them PSAs, but they're commercials that are being played where they are recognizing first responders and it's police uh-huh. officers, it's firefighters, it's EMTs. It's So you're right. To use the term first responder is also a misnomer because that's, that's not what they are either. Right. So two of the players, the two players initially filed a lawsuit claiming negligence and saying that the college, quote, ran its athletic training department in a manner demonstrating a total disregard for the safety of its student athletes or the laws of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Additionally, they argued that the college was negligent in its failure to provide qualified athletic trainers who could have directed an end to or a modification of the improperly conducted drill in the interest of the student athlete's safety and who would have been able to properly assesses, assess the stinger and advise him against returning to the, to the drill. But get this, the Lackawanna County judge dismissed the lawsuit, saying that a waiver signed by the players protected the school. So Tammy, I want to read a portion of that waiver here so that our listeners can understand, but then I want you to let us know, like, is is this standard standard language for a release? So it says, in consideration for my participation in sport, I hereby release, waive, discharge, and covenant not to sue Lackawanna College, its trustees, officers, agents, and employees from any and all liability, claims, demands, actions, and causes of actions whatsoever arising out of or related to any loss, damage, or injury, including death, that may be sustained by me 
or to any party belonging to me while participating in such athletic activity. It also says, it is my express intent that this release and hold harmless agreement shall bind my family if I am alive and my heirs, assigns, and personal representative if I am deceased and shall be deemed as a release, waiver, discharge, and covenant not to sue Lackawanna College, its trustees, officers, agents, and employees. I hereby further agree that this waiver of liability and hold harmless agreement shall be construed in accordance with the laws of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. What are your thoughts, Tammy? Well, it, with the caveat that each state has its own laws about what language in a waiver is required and or enforceable, that language does hit on some of the general provision, provisions you would find in a waiver and release and has a lot of the general, like you will find uh, trustees, officers, agents, mm-hmm. and employees. Yeah, um, that's you know, they, standard. They want to make sure there are no loopholes for liability. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not it is enforced or whether the specific case pattern uh, leads a judge or jury to believe that the incident was included in something that could be waved away or didn't rise to the level of, for instance, as we talked about in the in the first part of the of this particular episode, mm-hmm. uh, to gross negligence. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is pretty standard legally type of type of language. That's crazy that yeah. somebody can sign literally their life away. I mean, I think yeah. it's a joke like, oh, sign your life away. No, like literally these players sign their life away. So The story gets even juicier. (laughs) So the players appealed the decision in 2017. So a full seven years after the injuries have occurred. And the appeals court ruled that the initial judge hadn't properly considered the player's argument that the waivers were invalid because the college was grossly negligent for not using certified athletic trainers. So even though the waiver was seen to be valid, the college committing its own act of negligence, hiring non-certified athletic trainers, opened it up to separate liability not covered in the waiver, citing, quote, waiver cannot be used as a shield against recklessness. I think that's what you were kind of just alluding to. Uh And so the case continued as negligence based on the college's duty of care to student-athletes to provide qualified medical personnel at athletic events. The college then fought this, stating that there's, quote, no legal requirement in Pennsylvania or standard in the NGCAA requiring a certified athletic trainer to be on the college practice field. I will reveal the outcome of this case in a moment, but I can't help but feel like infuriated that these two athletes were seriously injured and the college clearly could have done more to assist them or to protect them. And it seems like it's a fight over like ticky tacky words. I mean, Tammy, is this what law is? Well, unfortunately, sometimes yes. Mm. Um, And I'm sure the college paid some very expensive lawyers to make that argument. Um, But I do not find it convincing. Mm-hmm. Um, while yes, there may not be a legal requirement to have a certified athletic trainer at an event by providing personnel that were held out as certified athletic trainers, mm-hmm. the school was indeed opened up to liability. Yeah. Um, it's not that they didn't have someone there. 
they, you know, that's not the problem. And again, you can kind of think about it in terms of what we talked about in the last up or the last half of the first half of this episode mm-hmm. um, about omission and commission. Mm-hmm. So they didn't omit having a athletic trainer on the field. Right. That wasn't the problem. But they held out that the people that were on the field were certified athletic trainers or operated in the same vein yeah. as certified athletic trainers. So yeah. if you want to look at back at the four elements of the negligence claim, it's clear the school had a duty to the athlete, mm-hmm. that they breached that duty by not providing care that is considered adequate or does not comport with the standard of medical care mm-hmm. that's expected in the industry or similar situations. That's two of the four elements of negligence right there. Yeah, that's a good point. It makes me think about, um, before I get to reveal the the the, the result like of, the, of the commercial, you know, it just makes me think about the situation in California where you know, to your point of like, they said, you know, it, you're not legally responsible to provide a certified athletic trainer, but if you're putting someone else out there who isn't certified, but you're calling them an athletic trainer, you know, I, I wonder if there is any kind of liability from that perspective. I, I know that in the state of California, you know, the fight really is to educate people about hiring certified versus non-certified, but I don't know. It just kind of gave me a different angle to think about it from when you said it that way, because, you know, even if it's not illegal, there's still best practices. There's still, you know, ways of going about things that are like we say above bar. Well, yeah, I think that's exactly right. I would make that argument. Exactly. That there's a problem with that. I would absolutely make that argument. And I think that that's the argument that California is making is that, you know, it doesn't have to be legal or illegal to do the things that we know are best, especially because school districts or, you know, whoever it is, have a duty to those athletes to be providing someone who is competent and certified and, you know, uh, held to certain standards that uh, our profession mandates. Yeah. So not to keep us in suspense any longer. Um, basically this is how it ended up panning out. So the court held that when a student athlete was participating in a scheduled athletic practice for an intercollegiate team sponsored by the college under the supervision of college employees, that is a special relationship that exists between the college and the student athlete. And it was sufficient to impose a duty, a reasonable care, just like you said, Tammy. So the court further held that the college's duty of care to its intercollegiate student-athletes required it to have qualified medical personnel available and to provide adequate treatment in the event that an intercollegiate student-athlete suffered a medical emergency. So the college was held liable, and we don't know how much they ended up settling for, but it just, you know, this was a really convoluted one and one that I felt like really deserved a little bit more specified attention because to me, this sort of seems like a David and Goliath where if the the institution that has the team of lawyers can just keep fighting, well, it doesn't say this, it says this. Like, like I said, it feels very ticky tacky, but mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know. I mean, what what's your interpretation of this? Well, I think you're right. It's, it's very convoluted and mm-hmm. you are also incredibly correct that in in making the David versus Goliath standpoint. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't want us to lose track of that detail you mentioned that the case was resolved in favor of the athletes seven years mm. after the injuries occurred. Yeah. So this was certainly an expensive lawsuit. 
Um, and I don't have firsthand knowledge of the school strategy, but this is the kind of situation we've talked about in the past where one party drags a case out as long as they can to tire out a plaintiff mm. um, and hope that they either settle or lose the motivation to fight, Yeah. Um, you know, or they lose the financial ability to fight. Yeah. Um, you know, the athletes may have finally prevailed, but at, at what cost? Mm. Really? You That's know, a really good point. Yeah. You're talking about the loss of um well the one guy see, lost what, the use the, of his right arm. The use of his right arm. Yeah. yeah. And so you're telling me that you could get just a job that you may have expected to get. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking about somebody in their early to mid twenties mm-hmm. who now cannot do a job that requires the use of a of a right arm. Mm-hmm. Essentially becoming disabled. Yeah. And, you know, for almost seven years while he's fighting this, you know, to your point, it's like, what kind of job could he have gotten while he's maybe going to get a settlement Mm -hmm. from this, but maybe not. Yeah. Well, and you know, the lawyers took their cut. Mm, Touche. So this is, I mean, it's, it's, it's tragic on a lot of different levels. When you look at, you know, who really got screwed here because an organization didn't necessarily want to do what was right. Yeah. I mean... For we don't know for sure, but I mean the institution is no worse off because of this. Not not the way that these student athletes' lives are, you know. From no. a, yeah. So no, nowhere close. Yeah. Nowhere close. Yeah. Um. Now to get kind of into um you know into some of the weeds of the of the details that you talked about. Yeah. Um. There are other legal premises which are much more settled. Um, and we talked about them, we addressed them earlier, um, that of assumption of risk. Okay. So, you know, without getting too wonky, the assumption of risk doctrine is a defense that can be argued by someone being sued. So instead of a plaintiff making a case and get having to, you know, confirm and hit all four elements of the negligence claim, okay. Okay. this is a defense that can be used. And that's, Sort of what the college was trying to say okay. um, is that they um, they chose to participate, okay, and therefore assumed the risk. Okay, so a defendant would argue that the plaintiff knew of a dangerous condition mm-hmm. and voluntarily exposed herself or himself to it. Okay. Therefore, the plaintiff is not entitled to damages from the defendant. Okay, okay, okay. so maybe so that this would gets be a lot of play. Yeah, sure. I, I was. I mean, I could. I could see that being a reasonable argument, you know, sure. outside of negligence. But yes, okay, okay. So mm-hmm. continue. Yeah, no, it's it's you know for obvious reasons this is very applicable in sports. Yeah, um, absolutely. And not just so you can run around using the Latin. Uh, I think it's volenti non fit, volenti non fit injuria. Mm. <laughs> sure, that's your assumption of risk. Yeah, there you go. You <laughs> Come for the athletic training, stay for the Latin. There you go. Um, but courts have routinely reaffirmed reaffirmed the assumption of risk doctrine as a hurdle that plaintiffs in sports related injury lawsuits have to get past. Yeah. Although it certainly doesn't work every time. Sure. Um, but it can relate to orthopedic injuries. It can relate to things like getting hit by a line drive in baseball. Ah. If you look at the back of a ticket, anytime you go and see this and things like I think of hockey and baseball yeah. um, specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, in fact, this is, I'll go down a bit of a rabbit hole, but it, it just kind of gives a practical idea sure. of this. You see incidents where someone is hit by a line drive. Mm -hmm. They're sitting behind the dugout and they're hit by a line drive. They sue. The team says, 
you assumed the risk Mm -hmm. by coming to the game. Mm -hmm. The counter to that defense would be, well, you should have had a net that went absolutely further. Yeah. Because you should have known that balls that are generally hit will go at this angle and the net should have been extended. And if you look, there are even as we speak, teams that are extending the net line. Yeah, yeah, I know it's definitely become a thing, especially down like the first and third baselines. I've absolutely Mm -hmm. noticed that. Mm -hmm. But that is that is hinged on arguments about the assumption of risk doctrine. And I just thought you, they were doing it out of niceness. They they just were yeah. genuinely. <laughs> yeah, that's what their you know, lawyers would tell you. About their doing. audiences. Uh-huh. Yeah. Look how popular um, they've become. <laughs> I know. We just really wanted to do that. And they have to balance that because, well, we can't see. We can't see. Oh, you know what? Yeah. <laughs> the, the teams are going to do a cost-benefit analysis of that because of course. people getting injured by a line drive or a split bat or something like that, it's rare. Sure. But – it can be very devastating. Yeah, when it so happens, they it can do be that. catastrophic. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's no, no. <laughs> I can't think of anybody that's like, God, I was just thinking I wanted to get hit in the head with <laughs> yeah, a line <line-drive>. drive. Exactly. <laughs> exactly what I was doing. Yeah. Um, but so you think about it in terms of that. There's a key case that's, you know, it's kind of sport law history mm-hmm. uh, known as Knight v. Jewett. Okay. Um, and it held that a plaintiff injured during a touch football game couldn't sue for negligence because the primary assumption of risk doctrine for ordinary and careless conduct during a sports activity applied. So if you're playing touch football and somebody steps on your finger and accidentally breaks it Mm -hmm. while, while you're tackling somebody or Mm -hmm. that kind of thing, that's, that's, that's understood to be something of the assumption of risk. You knew you were doing something that that kind of thing could happen. The potential was there. If you were on the ground and somebody came up very angrily and stepped on your hand, it was like, that'll teach you to do that. It's an entirely different thing, just to be clear. Don't don't think that you can go step on somebody's ankle (laughs) while they're down and uh, claim, oh, it's assumption of risk doctrine. Like, no. No, I don't want to hear. All you Quidditch players, that. you know. Don't. All you, if you swallow a snitch, somebody yeah. does. Um, so, you know, without making the listener's eyes glaze over, you can think about this idea that athletes assume a risk when playing sports sure. in terms of the discussion around the concussions and CTE. Mm. So some of the lawsuits against the leagues are claiming that the leagues had knowledge of the dangers of repeated head yeah. trauma. Yeah. And that by hiding that knowledge from the athletes and not taking steps to address it, the leagues and organizations would be liable. Ah, uh, yeah. So if you think that the leagues say, well, the athletes knew that playing football, hockey, or another contact sport was dangerous, oh. i.e. assumption of risk doctrine, yeah. they shouldn't be liable for anything because of that. So that's it, in real life, you can see the assumption yeah. of risk doctrine. I mean, it's very, it's very slippery slope, right? Like it's, yeah. you know, yes, there is the assumption of risk, but you're, but you were potentially also withholding information. So it's like, it's like if I go on a roller coaster and it's like, sure, you know, I assume the risk of going on the roller coaster, but you knew that it was faulty and that it was going to fall off the tracks. So it's like, yeah. when it falls off the tracks, I should be allowed to sue because you knew it was faulty and you let me get on anyways, regardless of whether I knew that riding a roller coaster, there was an assumption of risk in there. So I I hear what Uh you're saying. Yeah. That there still is a duty to care or a duty to act as a result of having that information that is separate of just the assumption of risk in participating. 
Well, and I'll tell you what, if you want to think about it kind of one step further and slightly and, and outside of the sports related industry, mm-hmm. think about tobacco. The argument in the litigation around tobacco for decades was whether or not tobacco companies knew that smoking cigarettes caused cancer. Mm. So it's, you know, it's not necessarily what we would think of in this term of an assumption of risk, but there are, you know, if you, if, if the company producing something that you put into your body knows it's dangerous and they don't tell you, you can think about it in terms of that with like the argument about the CTE, did they know? Was there, were they in possession of scientific evidence that chronic head contusions were leading to these long-term issues hmm. and did they not disclose it? So and again, it all just kind what's of works being around. Disputed. I mean, that's, yeah. that, that, those are the details where all of this information lies, right? Like, cause I mean, mm-hmm. th- yeah, that's kind of the- Well, yeah. as a recent example, the, the case uh, that we, we mentioned, um, mm-hmm. Plots versus the NCAA, it recently settled. But it argued exactly that, that the NCAA was in possession of information hmm. that about uh, head injuries and did not uh, notify or pass that information on to the student athletes, wow. um, student athletes, to the college athletes. <laughs> we all know my, my fan of the student athlete moniker. But, you know, I can't help but wonder if the reason that this settled was because the NCAA did not want discovery to proceed where internal documents about what was known or not known about the risk of head injuries and the duty to the organization to make the athletes aware of it if that was made public. Yeah. So for more context, go back to the episode where we talk about why some lawsuits settle. But, you know, it sort of it, it weaves it's all kind of weaves its merry little way through um, a lot of the things that we've been talking about. Yeah, man, I just. I don't know. It's just hard to believe that human beings do this to other human beings, you know, like at the expense of a dollar. And I mean, I know that money is powerful. Don't get me wrong, but you know, it's just, these are people's lives that we're talking about. And it's, it's just really disheartening to hear, to, to think about really that, like I said, with the David and Goliath situation, you know, that, that guy's life was forever altered and this institution is probably no worse off because of it. Well, and it's why I do work on NCAA reform. Mm-hmm. It's not because I have anything personal against most of the people that work at the NCAA. Sure. They are good. They are good people. Yeah. Um, they have the best interest mm-hmm. of the athletes at heart. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of them do. Yeah. But the institution as a whole has become unfit for purpose, in my opinion. Yeah. And this is just one element of it where the almighty dollar above the well-being of athletes, not just in their safety mm-hmm. or, you know, their uh, the treatment after they're injured um, or injuries that last past when their, you know, playing time has has finished. Mm-hmm. But but the duty they have to ensure that these athletes get academic. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, get their get their academics. You know, they, they have a responsibility to not tell athletes to not take certain classes because they don't have relationships with tutors right? or they don't want them to miss practice. Mm -hmm. So they can't take a science Mm -hmm. degree that would require labs. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, that's my, that is why I do the work I do in the policy space around the NCAA. It's just because like you said, you're talking about somebody that places an organization and some people within it, but the organization that places the almighty dollar at the mm-hmm. um, 
you know, out at the expense of the the people making the money. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think you and I could record a whole podcast of this and, and maybe we will, but it's just, you know, there's enough money and you're not, you know, it, it may cost you a little bit to make the reform, but in the end, you'll still have enough money. You'll still have the sport. Everything will go on. Yep. But everybody will be safer because of it. Everybody will be better educated. Every like you're actually going to be producing the product that you said that you were going to produce, which is a student athlete. So yep. I, I applaud your efforts, Tammy. <laughs> well, <thank you. clears throat> it's it seems prudent to say here, uh, you know, if you read a job description, a contract, a policy, or you know, really any other document that is not in compliance with state law or your scope of practice. Obviously, you need to speak up and and say something. So, you know, in the event of a lawsuit, it seems that probably some of the first documents that a lawyer is going to look at are are these ones. So, ensuring that they line up with your standing orders and that your the the work that you're performing is going to be important. You know, it, it's it's all just part of the due diligence and, and the prudence part of it. So. We, you know, I, I kind of want to finish this off and and provide our listeners with um, some opportunities to 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 get better with all of this. And one of the more professional, one of the more popular professional insurance providers for athletic trainers, HPSO, produced a document called the Risk Management Strategies for the Athletic Trainers, and this is linked in our show notes. And uh, it's a great resource. It's um, you know, you can, you can download it. And, and I think that everybody should take the time to, to glance through it and, and see what kind of stuff they have in here. But they stated in the document that claims related to negligence included one or more of the following allegations, quote, failure to complete a proper assessment, failure to provide a safe environment and improper use of a physical agent. And then it went on to state that the most common claim-related injuries included fractures, burns, and traumatic brain injuries. So I think that another important point to make here is actually making sure that you are insured. <laughs> and, you know, I'm going to say this until I'm blue in the face. This is one of the soapboxes that I stand on is that Every single healthcare practitioner should carry their own professional liability insurance. And furthermore, purchase your own. Do not rely on your employer to provide it or to assume that the policy that they may have in place covers you sufficiently. And I know Tammy and I, we we really touched on that in the Maryland case, but mm-hmm. it's it's important information. Absolutely. And, you know, in regards to treating an athlete as a whole person, I think that we would be remiss if we didn't at least quickly revisit our previous episodes regarding pre-existing and preventable conditions. And Tammy, I know that this is an area that you're deeply passionate about. And so do you want to touch on kind of how negligence can be viewed through the scope of quality of life and not treating an athlete like a commodity? Um, well, I, I always appreciate you giving me a chance to beat this drum because <laughs> it is relevant to each and every one of the topics that we are discussing this season. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's unconscionable that some sports and organizations approach the welfare of athletes 
as if they're disposable commodities. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, too many concussions? Well, we've got a depth chart and recruits ready to fill the gap. Yeah. Uh, taking in hundreds of thousands of dollars in youth sports fees and claim you don't have the money to provide adequate coverage for practices and games? Well, I guess that's just a cost-benefit analysis. Right. <laughs> I mean, what what is the cost of a human life? Mm-hmm. What is the cost of a young person's future? Mm-hmm. What was the cost of that athlete's right arm mm-hmm. that he will not be able to use for right. the rest of his life? Right. You know, even take it one step further. What if the medical coverage and the screening that these kids or these people get through sports is the only medical experience that they have because right. their parents or family can't afford health insurance. Yeah. Until this country gets its act together, there are you may be the only medical personnel mm-hmm. some of these young people see. Yeah. Now that does not mean that you need to be a an oncologist right. and a you know a urologist mm-hmm. and a ophthalmologist not expecting that. Mm-hmm. But if you think about the fact that you could be the conduit that this person has to getting medical treatment for something mm-hmm. that's a human that's yeah. not a that's not a commodity that's not a depth chart right that's not someone who if they go pro can go back and give money to your organization yeah. that's a person yeah but her yeah. damn will act like it mm-hmm. no yeah absolutely yeah um, yeah so it's you know it's important to predict it's in, it's vital to protect yourselves and your organization from liability. Mm-hmm. No serious person argues otherwise. Right, right. This is, I'm not saying you should just give in and, you know, anytime anybody comes and asks you for money, you go, oh, well, clearly it must have been a fault of ours. Mm-hmm. Not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But if you view the value of the athletes through a strict cost-benefit analysis, then you need to go be an actuary. Yeah. Not a sports <laughs> medicine professional. <laughs> you can go be an actuary. Uh, yeah. Less chance of sunburn. Yeah. So... We are a vital part of the medical team, and in some cases, we're the most important part. Yeah. I don't have any problem saying that. So to not take that responsibility and privilege seriously mm-hmm. is unconscionable. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I love when you beat that drum. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm walking back and forth. I pace when I say it. Yeah. Hand gestures and all. Yeah. Because I mean it. As you should. As you should. Thank you for listening. You are now eligible to earn your free Category A CEU by logging on to theadvantage.com slash CEU and taking the quiz. If you're enjoying listening or know a colleague looking for free CEUs, please share our link and don't forget to like us on social media at The Advantage. Thank you to Mr. Logistics for the music you've heard throughout.